add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit MichiganLottery.com to add a little play to your day. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy can talk. Um, Whether you are watching us on Twitter, Periscope, Facebook Live, or YouTube Live, welcome. Or if you're just listening to us on radio, stream, or podcast, welcome as well. We have a very great show in store for you today. Uh, We're going to be um, talking uh, about the legacy of Congressman John Lewis. I'm going to um, share with you uh, what he meant to me and what he's done and how that, what that has meant to me. Uh, we're also going to hear from Kristen Clark, president and executive director of the national lawyers committee for civil rights under law, who leads one of the country's most important and long tenured national civil rights organizations in the pursuit of equal justice for all. Uh, but right now let's do what we normally do. And I'm sorry I didn't come in before folks. I was running a little bit behind, uh, actually picking up stuff at PetSmart where, where they know me by name now because I have a new pet, <laughs> PetSmart and Petco, but PetSmart down the street from my house, they know me by name. I'm constantly in there picking up stuff uh, for the, uh, the, the, the new member of our family, Apollo, our little puppy, who is like my third child. It's a lot of work. A lot of work. The kids don't do as much as they said they would do. But anyway, let's start and kick it off uh, with this uh, segment of Ripped from the Hell. First, I want you to take a listen to Attorney General Bill Barr, because today he was before the House Judiciary Committee and the House Judiciary Chair, Jerry Nadler, that got in an accident, but they delayed just for a little bit for him uh, to come in and lead as the chairman should. Uh, and he is thankfully okay after his accident. Uh, Jerry Nadler just said that, told, uh, General Bill Barr told uh, Jerry Nadler that he discussed President Trump's re-election effort with him but he declined to elaborate when he was questioned about it. Take a listen. Yes or no, have you discussed the president's re-election campaign with the president or with any White House official or any surrogate of the president? Well, I'm not going to get into my discussions with the president. Well, have you discussed that topic with him, yes or no? Not in, not in relation to this program. I didn't ask that. I asked if you discussed that. With I'm a member of the cabinet, and there's an election going so, on. Obviously, the topic so comes the up. Is yes. 
Well, the topic yes. comes up in cabinet meetings and other things. Shouldn't, okay. It shouldn't be a surprise that, that the topic of the election. I didn't say I was surprised. I just asked if you've done that. So as part of those conversations with the president uh, or his people about the re-election campaign, have you ever discussed the current or future deployment of federal law enforcement? In connection with what? In connection with what you just said, in connection with, the, with your discussions with the president or with other people around him of his re-election campaign, have you discussed the current or future deployment of federal law enforcement? Well, as I say, I'm not going to get into my discussions with the president, but I've made it clear that I would like to pick the cities based on law enforcement need and based on neutral criteria. So, but you, you can't tell me whether you discussed... No, I'm not going to discuss what I discussed with the president. Can you commit today that the department will not use federal law enforcement as a prop in the president's re-election campaign? We are not using I just want to close with this thought. You really can't hide behind legal fictions this time, Mr. Barr. It's all out in the open, where the people can see what you are doing for themselves. The president wants footage for his campaign ads, and you appear to be serving it up to him as ordered. And uh, I want you to take another listen because this is more from uh, that hearing when uh, Representative Cedric Richmond told Barr that when he took over the Department of Justice, he didn't put any black people into top staff roles, uh, which speaks um, volumes. And by the way, I want to point out that um, the Attorney General Bill Barr said there is not systemic racism within the police department, but there is within our nation, as if the police department isn't part of or within our nation. Anyway, take a listen to this audio of Congressman Cedric Richmond telling Barr uh, that there were no black folks in the top staff roles in the DOJ. Uh, the one thing that you have in common with your two predecessors, both Attorney General Sessions and Attorney General Whitaker, is that when you all came here and brought your top staff, you brought no black people. That, sir, is systematic racism. That is exactly what John Lewis spent his life uh, fighting. And so I would just suggest uh, that actions speak louder than words. And you should really should keep the name of the Honorable John Lewis out of the Department of Justice's uh, mouth. Very well said. This is Representative Steve Cohen calling out Bill Barr, the attorney general, for his unconstitutional secret police and for Epstein's suicide of convenience. Take a listen. He cleared and it was done. And you said, get it done. Well, I, I have the time. Thank you. In Portland, we've seen mothers and we've seen veterans who were peacefully protesting, not threatening the federal courthouse, beaten and gassed. Unidentified armed federal agents violently attacked demonstrators in a violation of the First Amendment's freedom of assembly and arrested citizens without individualized suspicion and a violation of the Fourth Amendment's protection against unreasonable searches and seizures and a warrant requirement. You've gone through the Fifth Amendment and due process and just negated it. And the Tenth Amendment, which leaves general policing to the law enforcement, to the state, has been forgotten. Maybe what happened was your secret police were poorly trained, just like your Bureau of Prisons guards were poorly trained and allowed the most notorious inmate in our nation's last several years, Jeffrey Epstein, to conveniently commit suicide. Boom. And uh, last but not least in this uh, four-part um, audio we're sharing with you from the hearings today is Attorney General Barr being asked by Representative Eric Swalwell, uh, a friend of this show and a friend of mine, uh, whether he is investigating Trump for intervening in Roger Stone's sentencing. Take a listen. I promise to not incriminate him. 
And you responded, no, that would be a crime. Is that right? Yes, I said that. You said a crime. You didn't say it'd be wrong. You didn't say it'd be unlawful. You said it'd be a crime. And when you said that, that a president swapping a pardon to silence a witness would be a crime, you were promising the American people that if you saw that, you would do something about it. Is that right? That's right. Now, Mr. Barr, are you investigating Donald Trump for commuting the prison sentence of his longtime friend and political advisor, Roger Stone? No. Why not? Why should I? Well, let's talk about that. Mr. Stone was convicted by a jury on seven counts of lying in the Russia investigation. He bragged that he lied to save Trump's butt. But why would he lie? Your prosecutors, Mr. Barr, told a jury that Stone lied because the truth looked bad for Donald Trump. And what truth is that? Well, Donald Trump denied in written answers to the Russia investigators that he talked to Roger Stone during the time Roger Stone was in contact with agents of a Russian influence operation. There's evidence that Trump and Stone indeed did, did talk during that time. You would agree that it's a federal crime to lie under oath, is that right? Yes. It's a crime for you, it's a crime for me, and it's certainly a crime for the President of the United States, is that right? Yes. So if Donald Trump lied to the Mueller investigators, which you agree would be a crime, then Roger Stone was in a position to expose Donald Trump's lies. Are you familiar with the December 3rd, 2018 tweet where Donald Trump said Roger Stone had shown guts by not testifying against him? No, I'm not familiar with that. You don't read the president's tweets? No. Um, we, uh, sorry, I was uh, talking with Mark there. Uh, let's rip another. There have been over 546 total press freedom incidents in the United States in the past few months, with roughly 137, that's over 25%, coming from law enforcement, according to new data from the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Tracker. Um, the state of play here is of the 125 physical attacks on the press during the recent protest, 77, that's over half, have come from law enforcement. These rules also threaten journalist access and independence. And driving the news, the escalating protest in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere around the country are causing a surge in incidents, which were, by the way, decreasing after the initial protest had begun in late May. Let's break it down in three different cities. Portland, for example, there have been 52 reports of journalists being abused, according to the Press Freedom Tracker, cited by Columbia Journalism Review. In Seattle, journalists are angry that a Seattle judge ruled that Five outlets, including the Seattle Times, must hand over unreleased photos and videos of a protest in May to help law enforcement solve an investigation. And in New York, the police department has put forth new rules for review that give officers the ability to reject, excuse me, further restrict journalists from covering police activity. Experts fear that police are using the excuse of protecting federal property to suppress protest, protest coverage. <clears throat> excuse me, Joshua Geltzer. Executive Director of the Institute of Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown Law Center said, quote, I do think that the federal forces in Portland appear to be using the presence of federal property as an excuse to operate, not a reason, and that those operations are threatening to chill press reporting and broader free expression. That's the first half of what's ripped. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Welcome back. 
YouTube Live, Facebook Live, Twitter, Periscope, all live, or listening to us on the radio live, on stream live, or maybe you're listening later than when we broadcast live uh, via podcast. Uh, we just are glad that you're joining us, whether you're listening, watching, or, or both. Appreciate that uh, today. I'm Leslie Marshall. We have a guest coming up later in the hour, and I also am going to talk about what John Lewis and his life and legacy has meant to me. And I know some people might say, what, you know, like, you know, what, 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 what would a white woman uh, take away from Congressman John Lewis? Well, I'll tell you in just a moment. But right now, let's finish the second half of what's ripped from the headlines. <clears throat> Former Vice President Joe Biden plans to detail today how his Build Back Better economic program will help African-American and Latino communities, explaining how he will leverage public funds to spur private investment for businesses that are grappling with COVID-19 and generations of structural inequality. Now, behind the numbers, in the fourth and final installment of his economic program, Biden will spell out how to specifically allocate for communities of color some of the money that he's previously announced. He's going to set aside $30 billion of the $300 billion he announced in his first Pillar for Innovation, funding for small businesses uh, in communities of color. And the goal is to leverage the $30 billion to make more than $150 billion available. And beyond the $150 billion for small businesses, additional federal funds would benefit communities of color. But the Biden campaign hasn't specified how much of the multi-trillion dollar plan would be specifically directed toward those groups. Now, if you look between the lines, Biden won't be announcing new top-line spending plans. Rather, he'll explain what portions of his plan will be dedicated towards racial equality using a mix of new and old programs and tax credits. Biden doesn't explain, uh, doesn't plan to explain how he'll pay for his economic program, though he and his campaign officials have said parts of it will be covered by repealing the Trump tax cuts, while other parts will be considered stimulus spending. Campaign officials haven't put a total price tag on Biden's spending ambitions, but the first three planks, well, they're likely to cost north of $3 trillion. His first plank included some $700 billion to create 5 million jobs. That's my dog, sorry. The second detailed roughly $2 trillion for climate-friendly infrastructure, and the third promised $775 billion for caregiver and education jobs. So what is the big picture here? After Biden rolls out his economic agenda, Attention is going to turn to his choice to serve as his vice president, which he said could happen as early as this Saturday, August 1st. The final plank in his economic platform, like his other three, borrows heavily from many of his rivals for the Democratic nomination, as Biden looks to aggregate the best ideas in his party as the country faces an uncertain economic future. By the way, that's what I would do, right? Take the, take the best from the brightest around you and add to it yourself, and that should be the best plan. It would also encompass um, all of those uh, voters out there um, who liked different candidates before he was the nominee. Now, why does this matter? Carefully crafted policy plans are clues to how a candidate will govern. But July's policy pronouncements aren't exactly set in stone. Biden is leaving himself enough flexibility to adapt to the economic effects of COVID-19 and go either bigger or smaller something we haven't seen our current president and leadership do. Let's rip another. Riots in downtown Richmond, Virginia over the weekend were instigated by white supremacists under the guise of Black Lives Matter. That is according to law enforcement officials, not left-wing bloggers. Protesters tore down police tape. They pushed forward toward Richmond police headquarters where they set a city dump truck on fire. Police declared the event an unlawful, 
assembly and ordered people to leave, later deploying tear gas. Six people arrested and the mayor of Richmond thanked the Black Lives Matter protesters. He tried to stop, he said, tried to stop those white supremacists from spearheading the violence. Uh, the mayor, uh, LeVar Stoney, said, quote, their mission is simple, not the Richmond we know. Besides the police department, damage also occurred in and around the VCU uh, campus. Let's rip another. And another for ripped in the headlines today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, th- this is th- this is killing me. So many people have been tweeting about this today. There's a doctor in Houston, Texas, who has praised hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, uh, and says that face masks aren't necessary to stop transmission of the highly contagious coronavirus. Um, this woman has become a star in the right wing internet. She's had ten- tens of millions of views on Facebook. Just yesterday alone, Donald Trump Jr. declared the video of Dr. Stella Emanuel a must-watch. Donald Trump himself retweeted the video. Now, before Trump and his supporters embrace Emanuel's medical expertise, though, they should consider other medical claims that she has made, including those about alien DNA and the physical effects of having sex with witches and demons in your dreams. I can't make it up. Emmanuel is a pediatrician. She's also a religious minister. She has a history of making bizarre claims about medical topics and other issues. She's often claimed that gynecological problems like cysts or endometriosis are in fact caused by people having sex in their dreams with demons and witches. She alleges alien DNA is currently used in medical treatments and that scientists are cooking up a vaccine to prevent people from being religious. I'd like to see that vaccine. And despite appearing in Washington, D.C. to lobby Congress yesterday, she has said that the government is run in part not by humans, but by reptilians and other aliens. Although looking at some people, we wonder, right? Anyway, Emmanuel gave her viral speech on the steps of the Supreme Court at the White Coat Summit, a gathering of a handful of doctors who call themselves America's frontline doctors and dispute the medical consensus on the novel coronavirus, The event was organized by a right-wing group, Tea Party Patriots, big surprise. They are backed by wealthy Republican donors, big surprise. In her speech, Emanuel alleges that she has successfully treated hundreds of patients with hydroxychloroquine and uh, a controversial treatment that Trump himself has promoted, says he's taken himself. But the studies have failed to find proof that the drug has any benefit in treating COVID-19. The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, in June last month, revoked its emergency authorization to use it to treat the deadly virus, saying it hadn't demonstrated any effect on patients' mortality prospects. Emanuel said nobody needs to get sick. Sick, this virus has a cure, which is medically irresponsible, because you can have a theory, a hypothesis about a medication, but you can't say this virus has a cure. Emanuel said in her speech that the supposed potency of hydroxychloroquine has a treatment means that protective face masks aren't necessary, claiming that she and her staff have avoided contracting COVID-19 despite wearing medical masks instead of the more secure N95 masks. By the way, they're still wearing masks. Hello, you don't need a mask. There is a cure. But she and her staff are wearing masks. Toward the end of Emmanuel's speech, the events organizers and other participants can be seen trying to get her away from the microphone because she sounds a little cray-cray. But footage of the speech captured, that's my opinion, but footage of the speech captured by Breitbart was a hit online, becoming a top video on Facebook, amassing roughly 13 million views, significantly more than Plandemic, another coronavirus disinformation video that became a viral hit 
online in May. It amassed 8 million Facebook views. Hydroxychloroquine. Trended on Twitter as Emmanuel's video was embraced by the Trump's conservative student group Turning Point USA. And uh, but it's headed by Charlie Kirk, who called me a racist on national TV a week or two ago, and pro-Trump personalities like Diamond and Silk. But both Facebook and Twitter, I think it's funny when a white person calls a white person uh, racist, by the way. But both Facebook and Twitter eventually deleted the videos of the speech from their sites. They said it rules against COVID disinformation. Uh, the deletion set off another round of complaints. Uh, by the way, she said Jesus Christ was going to destroy Facebook servers. JC wasn't available for comment. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. We lost um, a hero, a titan, if you will, this past week the first African-American to lie in state, as he should, Congressman John Lewis. I wanted to take this opportunity because I was going to write a column about this this week, and it got changed up. I'm going to be writing about Joe Biden's VP pick as it's supposed to come down most likely on Saturday. And uh, my column will come out over the weekend or on Monday. As soon as he, he picks, I'll be writing that. So the content of my column changed. But because I have this forum on my radio program here, I, I thought I, I, I just was burdened um, with what I wanted to say, whether in the written word or verbally. So I, I wanted to, to share this with you. My father's family is Jewish. They are Russian, Polish, and French on my father's side. My mother's family is Catholic. They're Sicilian and Irish on her side. I am a true Heinz 57. Um, I'm a melting pot within myself. My father was a jazz musician. My father died in 1992, which is why I refer to him in the past. And uh, my father played in an all black jazz band in the French Quarter in New Orleans pre-civil rights. He was dating and engaged to a black woman who he had fallen in love with, and she was murdered, although they say she was involved in an accident, when two rich, white, uh, very well-connected boys who were drunk ran her off the road and drove over her body. My father's best friend when I was growing up was black, and my father's best friend's wife was white. In pre-civil rights America, and, and even sadly to this day, there are people that look at others who are a mixed race couple. My husband's Indian. I've had those looks with my husband, depending on where we are as well. I was taught at a very, very early age that love sees no color. I had a t-shirt that said that for many years until it fell apart from so many wearings and so many washings. When I was nine years old, Growing up outside of Boston in Massachusetts, there was a family from South Carolina, and this is not just in South Carolina, this is just my story and what happened. There was a family from South Carolina that moved in next door, and there was a boy named Andy who was a couple years older than me, and he was kind of cute, and I thought, oh, cool, somebody new to play with. 
until one day he threw a rock at me and he called me an N-word lover. I didn't know what the N-word meant. I went into my kitchen and I said to my mother, mom, what's an N-word? My mother grabbed me by the back of my head, put my mouth in the sink, put ivory soap in my mouth, mushed it around, water inside, and literally washed my mouth out with soap. Before I knew what the N-word meant, I knew it was a very bad word because I saw the anger in my mother. My father, who is very different than my Sicilian Irish mother, uh, told me what it meant. And I really didn't understand at nine years of age, and I still don't understand at more than nine years of age now, how somebody can simply dislike another person or hate another person based on the color of their skin, their religion, their ethnicity, their culture, quite frankly, even their politics, but sticking with the race and, and sticking with the religion. I just couldn't understand that. This boy also called me, I think I can say anything here, right? I, I'm free to. This guy called me a kike uh, because I, I was half Jewish. Another word that I learned at nine years of age. So I learned at nine years of age that although love sees no color, hate sees it in a very different and terrible way. I was surrounded by people of all different backgrounds, especially because my father was a jazz musician. And anybody out there who's a musician or knows musicians knows that it's all about the music. It's all about the jamming. They don't really see differences among one another. They don't see each other as uh, the Irish guy, the Jewish guy, the white guy, the black guy. It's just sort of like he plays a mean guitar. So growing up, that's what I came from. My parents marched. They believed in the message of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. As a matter of fact, my parents were stopped when they were headed south for a march by a Southern sheriff who wanted to make sure that my parents weren't going to any N-word convention. And my parents were quite shaken up. So of course they lied and didn't tell that yes, they were going to that convention and to march. So I, I was brought up with this love sees no color, but I was also right, brought up with there's a right and a wrong. And that if you see wrong or injustice, you can't take a back seat. I further learned about this when I learned about heroes that saved people in the Holocaust from those Jewish members of my family that told stories of people that saved people, not people that were in my family, but people that became legends, Corey Ten Boom, for example, and, and, and many others. But I want to stick on, on, on my path here and, and not get off track so much. When you grow up with this mindset, it, it, it's just mind-blowing to me that somebody could look at a human being and think of them differently or as less than a human being simply based on the color of their skin. Now, my parents both taught me, like I said, that there was right and wrong, there was justice and there was injustice. My mother taught me very much so. Pick your battles, but if there's a mountain you want to die on, be prepared to die 
on that mountain for what you believe for the injustice. When I was 12 years old, my father and I were sitting and we were watching a TV show. I think it was Phil Donahue. And my uh, father asked me during the commercial break um, what I thought about the show. And I, I said, I think it's awesome. I'd like to do that. And my father looked at me and goes, what do you mean you'd like to do that? How's a little girl from this little town in Massachusetts going to do that? Not that my father didn't love me and believe in me, but my dad was a dreamer. And I always thought I'm going to be a doer. And I said, well, not necessarily that, a talk show host, which ironically I have become. I said, but I want to be somebody that makes a difference. And my father said to me, how can one person make a difference? And I said, dad, Jesus Christ made a difference. Dad, Moses made a difference. Dad, just look at Gandhi. There are so many people that made a difference. So he said, you want to be Jesus Christ, Moses, or Gandhi? I said, no, but I want to make a difference. John Lewis is one person who made a difference. John Lewis at 18 years of age, when he met Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said to him when he was 18, you want to be, you want to go to a white college. And he said, yes. And you want to fight for this. This is the mountain you're willing to die on. And he said, yes. He goes, they're going to bomb your house. They're going to burn it. They're going to try and kill your family. They're going to beat you and try and kill you. Are you sure? And John Lewis said, yes. And John Lewis in Selma, Alabama, walking over that bridge on that bloody Sunday, looked down the barrel of guns and bats and faces of white, angry law enforcement. And he walked peacefully toward those people, knowing that he could die and he was willing to die. That was a mountain he was willing to die on. He was willing to die on the mountain so that everyone could vote, willing to die on the mountain so that everyone could have an education, willing to die on the mountain so that everyone be treated equally. And I want to tell you more if you don't know this. John Lewis, against many in his community, the African-American community, stood up for the LGBTQ community because he said, I've been down this road before. I've seen this oppression. And it may not be the color of their skin, their sexual orientation, but they are being oppressed as well. John Lewis is an example of, of something and someone I hope that when I die, I can say I was a tiny piece of. I met him last year in Washington, D.C. at a supermarket. He allowed me to give him a hug. He was a true gentleman. He was gracious. He was kind. And I could see that fight and that wisdom in his eyes. The power of one person is amazing when they're brave and when they choose their battles, like my mother told me, and they pick that mountain to die on. And I hope someday that when I die, I've made a difference because Congressman John Lewis certainly has for me, this white girl, Leslie Marshall. We're going to take a break. We'll be back shortly. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com.
we're back and we're glad to have her back. She is Kristen Clark, President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law, leading one of the country's most important and long-tenured national civil rights organizations in the pursuit of equal justice for all. And the Lawyers Committee seeks to promote fair housing and community development, economic justice, voting rights, equal educational opportunity, criminal justice, judicial diversity, and more. She was back on the show in May on the 15th, gave an incredible interview. So we said, bring her back. Thrilled to have her back today. Thank you, Kristen, uh, for joining us. I appreciate you uh, taking the time today. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, I want to mention now, and I'll mention later, the website for the Lawyers Committee is lawyerscommittee.org. On Twitter, the handle is at lawyerscom, C-O-M-M. And Kristen's handle is at Kristen Clark, J-D. That's Clark, uh, Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Clark, C-L-A-R-K-E, J-D. Additionally, the Lawyers Committee powers 866-OUR-VOTE. They work 365 days a year to advance and defend your right to vote. Just call 866-OUR-VOTE with your voting questions and issues. And you know what? They'll answer them. We're less than 100 days, 99 to be exact, uh, from Election Day. Uh, Like I said, Kristen, thank you for taking the time. Um, The House has approved a proposal for Majority Whip James Clyburn, a Democrat from South Carolina, to rename legislation meant to restore a key provision of the Voting Rights Act after the late uh, Representative John Lewis, Democrat uh, from Georgia, who is uh, lying in state and the first African-American to lie in state and uh, rightly so deserving uh, that position. I found it interesting that his family said he didn't want the Edmund Pettus Bridge renamed uh, for him. He was too humble for that. Um, uh, why do you think it's necessary and important to do? And I, I agree with this uh, with this uh, proposal from the House. Uh, but why do you think it's important to do uh, to rename it uh, after Congressman John Lewis? And, and how do you think he would he would take that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, how appropriate. I mean, uh, the entire country is still mourning. I'm still mourning the loss of uh, John Lewis, who's such a true American hero, a civil rights giant, you know, the final person who was still living, who spoke at the March on Washington and was one of its key organizers and somebody who dedicated his entire life to the fight for voting rights and the fight to ensure that everyone has access to the ballot in our country. To me, this is a most appropriate way to honor this 17-term congressman who uh, was such a lion uh, in Congress when it comes to voting rights. Um, You know, you think about um, the pilgrimage that John Lewis took uh, going back to Selma, Alabama every year to reenact the bloody Sunday march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And there are so many of his colleagues, both Democratic and Republican, who would accompany him on that trip and listen to his firsthand testimony of being assaulted on that bridge in pursuit of the right to vote. As we listen to his colleagues uh, you know, give remembrances and issue statements talking about how much Lewis meant to them, that the best way to show that he really did mean something to you is to not just rename the act, but to move on it and to actually take action right now to restore the Voting Rights Act. This is a moment we've been waiting for. The Supreme Court issued a devastating ruling in 2013 that cut out the heart of the Voting Rights Act. And Lewis fought for seven years, the final seven years of his life to get Congress to take action. He won't live to see the moment, but we can honor him by making that moment come to fruition now. 
Yes. And, and when you think about it, he lived his life for this. And in a sense, may we could say gave his life for this. It, it always amazes me that he and so many others uh, in the civil rights uh, movement, that they would walk toward people with guns or with clubs, with bats, knowing that that could be their final moment, that, that that's how much this meant to them. I, I, I'm so admiring of that. Uh, so many of us would never have been as brave um, if it was an issue or a mountain to die on. And that certainly was, and it was the right thing to do. And he, you know, he, he lived to, to do so much. The lower chamber passed the proposal to re- rename HR4 the John R. Lewis Votings, Voting Rights Act by unanimous consent. Um, he was 80 when he passed on July 17th. Um, you had mentioned he played an instrumental role in the passage of 1965 of the Voting Rights Act. And in case people don't know it, it established greater protections for people registering to vote in the South. And the bill was passed uh, shortly. Um, after Congressman Lewis helped lead a group of protesters in the march from Selma, Alabama, long before he was a congressman, that Selma, Alabama to Montgomery march, and uh, pushing uh, for greater voting rights on that day we know as uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday, not the U2 song. When we look at what's happened between 1965 and now, 2020, because it it does shock me, does it shock you that we're even having a conversation about the Voting Rights Act? You know, it does. Um, And the story between 1965 today is one where we've seen progress, but we've also seen how clearly fragile that progress is, because in many respects, we took one step forward and two steps back. We're We're seeing voter suppression today that really looks and feels like a lot of the voter suppression efforts that date back to the 60s. We're seeing black voters purged from the registration rolls. We're seeing officials shutting down polling sites in communities of color. We're seeing officials move polling sites to hostile locations, as we saw in Macon Bibb County, when officials sought to move a polling site to a local sheriff's office. And we were able to beat back that scheme. But this is what we're up against. We're fighting tooth and nail uh, to ensure that everyone has access to the ballot box. It is a reminder about why we need HR 4 to be passed and signed into law. And, you know, we can't forget that we're at a moment where the voter suppression that we're up against is compounded by a pandemic, by an unprecedented pandemic that's making it harder for people to access the, the ballot box. So um, this is important work. It's an important project. It was Congressman John Lewis's life project. And I continue to hope that Congress does the right thing, that they they hold hearings and pass H.R. 4 into law. We also need Congress to allocate $3.6 billion in funding so that states have the resources needed to properly conduct an election amid a global pandemic. You're an African-American woman. I am not. As an African-American woman, I was wondering how you felt, because I know how I felt when I was watching uh, John Lewis's body cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge for one last time, a uh, moment of silence where he was beaten. And at uh, when he was 25 on that day where he suffered that fractured skull when he was beaten with a club by a state trooper, um, and there were hundreds of Alabama state troopers there, to see state to see state troopers and the military standing there saluting his his casket 
as it as it went by uh, on the caisson uh, to see military and and, and to see uh, police officers. Um, how did that feel? Not that the circle's completed, but in a sense, a, a full circle. A full circle. I mean, the complete opposite of karma. Yeah, it's a powerful, redeeming moment. Who would have ever thought that uh, those state troopers who, who um, you know, have this dark cloud looming over them, this history of using brutality yeah. against Lewis and so many others, uh, who would ever think that we'd see the day where they would pay respect in the way that they did? And, you know, this stands in stark contrast to our president who said that he would not be paying respects to this treasured uh, American hero. Uh, well, again, we've made some progress. We still have a ways to go in terms of work to achieve true racial justice and progress and full access to the ballot for all communities in our country. A couple of things, because we have little time and I, I just want to uh, get to as many as possible. Um, in 2013, the Supreme Court invalidated um, a, a key part uh, of the Voting Rights Act. Can you speak briefly to that for folks that don't understand what happened and why? Yeah. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965 hands down our most important federal civil rights law. And a critical provision of that act is known as the Section 5 Federal Preclearance Provision. And that provision required certain states with very long and egregious histories of voting discrimination, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, Texas, to get review of new changes, new laws before they could be put into effect that touch voting so that we could see and be sure that they would not put black voters and other voters of color in a worse position. And without those protections, we've seen the floodgates of voter suppression open up all across the country. We see it today. Congress must act. Congress must show that they truly honor John Lewis by taking action now to adopt the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and restore Absolutely. this most important law. Absolutely. Kristen Clark, thank you. President and Executive Director of the National Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. The website, lawyerscommittee.org. On Twitter, at lawyers.com, at Kristen Clark JD for her, and call them at 866-OUR-VOTE to get your questions answered. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Add a little play to your day with the Michigan Lottery. Over 90 online instant games to choose from, with prizes up to $500,000. A Marquette County woman recently won $250,000 playing online. Could you be next? Sign up online today to receive 10 free games with promo code FUN. Visit michiganlottery.com to add a little play to your day. With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming. Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details.